Joanna Pena Bickley has had an amazing arc to her design leadership career. From chief creative officer at Matter Worldwide and IBM, to her current role as head of research and design for Alexa devices at Amazon, Joanna has always sought to design things that are useful, usable, and magical. In this interview, we talk with Joanna about working cross-functionally with both software and hardware teams, and what she's learned about building a more connected workflow. We also get Joanna's take on speaking design in the language of business, and how she works to bring more diversity into leadership at the companies where she's worked. If you're already listening to this on your Alexa device, you can thank Joanna for her part in designing this experience. And no matter where you're listening, thanks for tuning in. Joanna, welcome to the Design Better Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I couldn't be more excited to to be chatting today. There's so much going on in the world of design that we could talk for hours, but I know we're limited to one. Totally. And your team is fascinating to us, leading Amazon's Internet of Things team and lots we can talk about there. But maybe let's start from the beginning. Tell us about growing up and how you found your way into your career? Well, let me start with, I grew up in a space and really in an interesting time. I am core to Generation X. You think about the way Generation X grew up, which was this fabulous time of being a latchkey kid, Mm -hmm. where you still had the freedoms sans significant, I would say, electronic oversight from your parents. And I can say that now because I am the mother of four two millennials and two Gen Zs. And I would tell you that my parenting style was probably remarkably different than my parents. Not better, just different, given the world that we live in. And so if I think a little bit back to where I started, which was really a precocious, very curious kid, a kid who was often consistently asking the question of why, Mm -hmm. and then immediately proceeding to say, but what if? Mm-hmm. And if I had one thread through my life, those questions remain persistent in my career. And I think as we look at just like a lifespan, because I'm now 17 years into this career that is called design, it has been consistent with this sense of invention. Now, I have to tell you that it wasn't until I was 30 <laughs> that somebody had to point that out to me. When you go through life as a designer making things, and I certainly loved making things as a kid, really getting into the craft of doing things. My mom is a designer. So I grew up a very middle-class existence in a space where my mom owned her own design company, and it was interior design. So I grew up with this sensibility around problem-solving, around space. And watching her grow a business while exercising her artistic muscle and her business muscle. And doing so at a time when, frankly, women inside of construction fields and architecture weren't heard of. And and actually weren't welcomed to a great degree. And so, you know, I had this great mentor, whether she knew it or not, in problem solving. But what was really interesting, I never found it to be, you know, it's like, oh, you know, I want to grow up, be just like my mom. As a typical teenager, you rebel against everything that your parents are and try to go and find your own way. 
And that is how I kind of landed into tech. (laughs) You go to school and you're like, no, 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 I think I know better. And what the reality was, was this just a phase of me exploring the why and what if (laughs) of life, to be honest with you. I don't have the direct path. I would say is direct. It's always like this zigzag through my career. But I can attribute things to playing in my mother's design studio. And she had a retail side of design, which people would come in and she would put together color boards. And so growing up in that space and really having a sensibility of things like architecture and the importance of what that is in the real world and how people move and how these systems begin to work was always kind of a part of my view of the world. Mm. But if you kind of bake that in, you know, while she's doing that, I'm taking apart all things in her office and at home, by the way, trying to unconstruct the way things work, trying to find out why things work the way that they do. Matter of fact, my parents tell really great stories. They're not always flattering, by the way, but really good stories <laughs> of me disassembling everything and then recepting it and then creating garage sales to try and sell my goods that I had invented. <laughs> and That's you know, it, my father was like, you know, it, it was it, my father was in a space of if you sell one more of my lawnmowers, I'm going to kill you, kid. <laughs> 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 but it was like, but dad. I, that lawnmower turned in to a go-kart. I could That's take amazing. the engine off that thing and like, you know, make my big wheel go. I spent all that early time, I would say, making trouble, but it was a good kind of trouble. It was the kind of trouble where you have two working parents and you leave this kid home for just a moment or with a babysitter. And I would have, if they had let me deconstructed our kitchen appliances to start talking to each other, you name it. And it was coming from a space that I was so influenced by listening and reading comic books. And in that kind of early developmental stages of my life, realizing, number one, I was dyslexic. I had a tremendous amount of trouble in school learning to read. I actually didn't really like get the fundamentals of reading till like I was in the third grade. Mm. And that wasn't normal. But where I over-indexed on was the ability to learn from an auditory standpoint. That is Mm -hmm. one of my superpowers in listening. Yeah. And so, so much of often when I was attempting to teach myself to read, I would record myself so that I would get used to the patterns. It was something that was a practice that I would say in the early 80s that they would do with dyslexic children. And so with that, I became so au courant on anything that was in a comic book, anything that told a visual story, mm-hmm. and then being able to articulate it back in a way that was, you know, why doesn't this exist now? And what if I could make it? Right? And my favorite, I think, kind of invention early on that I point back to, and my kids laugh at this all the time, was, yes, we had an A-track player, like I'm going old school. an A-track player and we had wired speakers we had this fantastic speaker system and I wanted to take one of those wired speakers to the outside 
these were not heard of things in the early 80s and 70s. So I managed to construct, really re-engineer the speaker system so that what they were able to do is start to pick up radio signals by disassembling the speaker, figuring it out at work, understanding how the radio worked and said, if I could bring these two things together through two antenna, like a CB radio, could Mm -hmm. this work? It sounded horrible. But it worked. <laughs> that's, that's so great. So I was that kid. And then we would, you know, it was like, okay, if, would somebody buy this invention? And we'd have these garage sales <laughs> where people would, you know, we'd go to try to sell my parents' poor brand new speaker system that I had disassembled. So I think the, the word to parents is don't leave kids like me alone too long and make sure they're directed not to sell your stuff. Or maybe leave them alone for a long time, long time with, them, right? with the stuff you don't care about. Care so about. They could, they could get their own education. That's exactly right. Had they yeah. not driven to work, you know what? I probably would have disassembled the car. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> but so in that early playful stage of that is what I realized how I learned, um, how I learned to do things, how I learned to read. It was so much around needing to deconstruct things and reconstruct them. And so you kind of saw that kind of follow through my life and into my career, because so much of what we do as designers, we are makers of things. And often we look at them and say, why was it designed this way? Maybe it wasn't designed for somebody like me. And I often found the world as somebody with a learning disability, that the world wasn't designed for somebody like me. And I wanted to design for kids like me or kids that had any kind of disability. I had an enormous sense of empathy because I think there was a kind of an old adage of that if you had any kind of disability, there wasn't the sense of inclusion, you were singled out. Yeah. And in that singling out, you know, you were like, well, why was I singled out? Actually, I'm as smart as, right? I just need to work at different skills. And in many ways, smarter, right? Because a disability like this, actually, you described it as it gave you a superpower learning through your ears, but it also probably affected your memory, like made your memory overdevelop. Is that right? Absolutely. If you tell me something, what's really interesting is that, first of all, I'm a vehement reader now. I don't think I was as a kid, but as an adult, I often have to read things twice to commit them to memory. Whereas when I hear something, I hear it forever. Yes. Um, yeah. So it's, it's this weird juxtaposition of where that skill you go, okay, that's a disability on one side, but my yeah. God, don't tell me anything you don't want me to remember. Yeah. that's <laughs> It's amazing for me to hear your story and think about how successful you've been and, and thinking about your origins. One of my sons, he's struggling with some things, not dyslexia, but something similar. And it's both challenging, like as a parent, you want to help your kid be successful and give them everything they need. And it's also given him this superpower that his memory is bonkers. It's crazy. He can remember crazy data sets, just spits them out. So yeah. um, it's, it's amazing how what feels like a disability is actually a super ability. That's absolutely right. And here's the way I kind of look at it, because what I realized, and I talked to so many different designers across the world, and I can't say this was all painting all, but many grew up with some kind of learning disability, or it was categorized as a learning disability at a point in time when we didn't know enough. And so many of us were art students. <laughs> you know? And when you think about those art students and those students that find a place in design and problem solving, we think differently. And I think so much of our, the institutionalization of our education system doesn't have an affordance 
for people mm-hmm. who think differently. And so I spend a lot of time now in my adulthood really focusing in with big corporations on how mm-hmm. to address that. Because if you thought our institutions for learning didn't accept people who think differently, or certainly our Fortune 500 companies don't at totally. a time when we really do need to think differently. Yeah. I've heard you this know? term neurodiversity. Yes. <laughs> and I just heard it recently for the first time. And when I heard that, it was just like, yes. Yeah, all of our brains work a little bit differently. Why don't we have that in our vocabulary to understand that this is who we are and this is how it works and that's okay? Yeah, and we as humans, you know, you think about it being a human interface, you know, you look at a human interface design. So much of the both the psychology, the sociology of understanding where people come from and ensuring that they are represented in your design is, is such a big conversation that I think I've continued to really try to push forward. I've always looked at it in, in the way that I'm always shocked at the tables that I get invited to, but I make sure when I'm at that table that I'm calling out when we aren't being inclusive mm-hmm. of, you know, I, you look at the numbers are staggering. I think it's one in four people, and that's just in the United States, have some kind of cognitive disability. And so you think about that from a a design standpoint, you say, in a world where we are making things, we should not look at people with disabilities as an edge case. Matter of fact, it's such a knife to the heart when I hear designers talk about edge cases, because what that means to me is you're writing that population for whatever reason, whether they're a disabled person or they come from a background of not knowing how to use this particular mental model. We're writing them off. What's really silly about that is we're actually, you may as well write that check to your competitor who isn't doing that. Mm. There is a dollars and cents part of that when you look at population sets. But if we go back for just a second and say, okay, I get through my teenage years, I decide I'm going to go be a journalist because I love to, you know, I love to storytell and I love to write. And I'm beginning that aspect of, Where I step into is broadcast journalism. As a high schooler, I had early internships with my local broadcast TV stations. And I would say they mistakenly let me in and then I didn't leave. Mm. I went from actually, you know, kind of kicking around and uh, anybody who needed coffee, I was there to get it. And then at the opportunities where they said, hey, do you want to go and do a field report with sports reporters? Or hey, the assignments desk needs somebody to sit on it at the lunch hour. Or I think the most impactful thing for me was the way that people put together stories in the newsroom and sitting with editors. And my favorite thing to do in that internship was really focusing in on being with reporters who were creating narratives and sitting with the editors who were editing the stories. And this was at a time when they were still real to real and things were just now getting kind of pushed into the world of computers. And in that world, I stumbled into digital because all of a sudden we were utilizing this medium to communicate And because I had spent my youth disassembling every computer that I ever knew or ever was given to me, from a Commodore 64 to an Apple, I understood how it worked. And so I began to utilize it as a tool of storytelling. And then so much of the broadcast world is sometimes there's a graphic sensibility to that. And we all forget that. It's not just, let's point a live camera, but there is a direction to it. And 
there is both an art and science to it. And I'd spent a lot of time in that art and science and really loved it. In that, one of my first jobs was with an ABC affiliate, but it was a also a pivotal point in my career where I went from being far more interested in the way that people were creating the stories than actually creating the story in of itself. And I will tell you that, you know, as I looked at it, it was an aha moment. And by the way, internet was just emerging. So if I give you the year, please don't judge. Because <laughs> mm. <laughs> it just puts a date on me. But in that, you know, you say, oh my gosh, you know, you're the 17 year old kid who's in newsrooms, you're about to be 18, and you're asking the questions that are pondering on the internet, and what is it here to do, and how can we utilize it as a forum for news organizations to move from really this old satellite time. We used to actually have to wait for satellite time if you had a national story into utilizing internet connectivity as the primary method. And so in that world, from my basement at late nights while trying to tell good news stories, I was asking, what if we could use this T1 line thing in 1996 to send this file, this digital file I've created of this edited story, to the network? And after tinkering around, teaching myself code, so the time we're using things like Macromedia Director. Oh, um, <laughs> you're speaking my language. I was a, I was a director pro. <laughs> you move into that space and you're like, wait a minute, I can create a player. Wait a minute. With the right connectivity, I can stream this from my computer to the network's computers. And so... One of the things that I did was actually invented one of the first macromedia streaming players where video started getting streamed for news organizations. And it was in that that I went, I really love doing this, this invention thing. And That's I'm amazing. let this continue on. And yeah, journalism is continuing to pay the bills, right? That was a very easy thing for me. But this other thing, oh my God, it's an addiction. And yet, I didn't have a language or a lexicon for it, but I had opportunity. And the opportunity was, all of a sudden, I had news stations across the country going, we need one of those. And one of those was a website with a video streaming player. And because I was able to make them, that is how I stumbled into this career. And that was actually started the founding of my very first company. And it was a company that put my husband through school and put myself through school. And simultaneously to that, we were new parents. And in doing that, you know, I, I would say that would be the most non-traditional zigzag way of stumbling in through an open door of opportunity and doing so in a way that was, if I make this, it might work. And believing in myself to say, you know, I've spent all of this time, I thought, God, you know, trying to be a journalist, and I was okay at that, but I was really great at making the things that journalists need to use, which at the time was this utilization of the internet. So in that space and time, some people have called it courageous. To be honest with you, it was dumb luck and stupidity because had I known the heretofore of business, the things that you would need to know in a startup, I don't know that I would have actually done those things. 
you know, when I look back and I think, oh my God, I remember what I needed to learn to get kind of X, Y, and Z to start up a company that didn't have a definition yet. I mean, if you think about it, it just was a space where it was, I made this video player. I know TV stations would like it. Oh, wait a minute. Hey, you know what? TV stations are owned by Disney. I wonder if I talk with them, would they be interested in it? And in that, it was this wonderful place of me designing things and then balancing that with the business of designing things. These were things that my mother had taught me being in her design studio. I was simply being a designer, or as we are now commonly referred to, a design technologist, a designer who was making things and selling them and looking at it through the lens of product. After the dot-com crash, as we, for those of us who lived through that, you go through the ebbs and flows of questioning. You're like, oh my God, did I do the right thing in my career? Is this thing. And the reality was, is that I wasn't necessarily thinking about my career so much as I was thinking about keeping food on the table for two children and continuing yeah. you know, to keep educating myself. <laughs> That's one thing I wanted to ask about because I went through the, uh, the pain of doing a startup when I had a little, my first daughter. I'm just curious how you went about balancing that, having two kids and having this successful career. It seems like a pretty huge accomplishment. Here's what I would tell you. I would be lying to you if I would, it was balanced at all. I was really fortunate to have a partner, call her a partner in love, a partner in friendship, who is my husband, who was in the field of medicine. And when my career began to take off, and he was, you know, in a place of still questioning whether or not he wanted to be in the world of medicine, actually said, you know what? I'm really good at being a parent and I'm going to come home and be that parent. And so what that allowed me to do was focus in on building a business that turned into a career. One of the things I'd also answer, and it's, it's a question that I get from a lot of female entrepreneurs, which is, you know, this idea that you can do it all. Here's the reality. I've done it all, but I've never done it all at once. And I think that's the thing that we have to remember as kind of human beings is that so often we are approached with opportunity to make things. And you have to make trade-offs, both in your personal and your career. For me, career, there was never a distinction. Home, yes, has always been home, but I was born a designer. It's not a career for me. It's a calling. And when it is your calling, what you try to do is integrate as opposed to balance. Because I think this nomenclature around balance is wrong. I think it's it's an idea that often is unachievable. And then we feel as humans or as parents or as spouses that somehow we have failed when what we should be thinking about are what are the goals that we're trying to achieve? And very much in my early career, it was keeping the lights on and a business and making sure I was making payroll and then making sure that I was in a space of understanding what I didn't know because there was so much that I didn't know about running a business. And then the second part of that was staying true to the part that made me get into the business of design, which was continuing to design inventions and finding people who would let me do it and pay me well to do it. And when I had those three goals, 
things progressed at a, at a natural thing, but I don't ever know that I, there was a time and I'd say in my mid thirties where I was looking for a sense of balance. And as I realized so many of my friends who are at SVPs and CEO levels said, you have to just decide what you want now. And it was often, I would have these amazing accomplishments for my age or for whatever status I was in the world that time. And it was what I realized is that I would get to take these pauses where it was time to dream a bigger dream and recalibrate. How do you know when it's time to dream a bigger dream? Sometimes they come unnaturally. I go, some of them are forced errors. <laughs> and some of, the, some of them are totally, you, you know it when you sense, hey, you know what? I set these goals out. Anytime that I have ever been in a role, I start with by setting goals for myself, the company, and particularly when I was designing an agency environment, right, in a consultancy, what were the goals of our clients? Because so often you will supersede the goals for your own company because the goals for your clients supersede everything in billings. And so, so often I would set those goals very early on and what we could accomplish. One of the things that I think that has been, I think, really important in my career was like, you can set a goal and you can set really bodacious goals, but often getting a sense and doing your homework or even just being in the business of making something and they went, oh, wow, I, re- I really, you know, on paper, this looked great. The idea was better than the, um, not better than the execution, but be- better than the experience because inevitably we are all still trying to design experience. And when you got to that place of imperfection, you recalibrate, but you're honest with yourself about that. And I think having that mirror in front of yourself of being honest and being objective, it was something that I learned very early on. You could fall in love with the cleverness of your ideas, or you could pay more attention to how those ideas impacted somebody and or other people or, you know, furthered the goal. And if they didn't, you know, you had to reevaluate and say, well, that wasn't what I intended. My advice often to folks that are very career-minded is that we focus in on getting back to the craft of making of things, because the more you make, the more trust you build, and the more you make, the more you learn. And when you take those interesting weaves and zigs and zags, what you will find out is you entered on the other side going, okay, I I have a forcing function that's going to make me recalibrate what this goal was, or I've accomplished everything I've set out to accomplish and maybe over-accomplished, and now it's time for me to dream a bigger dream. Because you could get so locked up in the churn of the dream. (laughs) And I think that's so much of what we do as design leaders, right? Is just really trying to recalibrate at all times. And I try to go into things pretending that I don't know anything (laughs) (laughs) because what that does is it invites points of view and knowledge from other points of view and inputs. And so that is so important in how I have looked for those momentary pauses, but I've always found that I can, you know, and again, momentary pauses sometimes happen because you really sucked at something and, you know, and you got to go, oh, wow, how did I do that so incredibly bad? A humbling momentary pause. 
Yeah. And and it's having that self-reflection was like, God damn, that sucked. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and just taking that in and saying, okay, how do you recalibrate and not allow that to define you? Right. Right. That's, re- that's really key because it's pretty easy to take on a message and that becomes part of your identity. And you have to remember that your experiences is greater than this one moment. You've got a that, lot more to offer. Right. That's exactly yeah. right. And I think that's one of the things that I really try to do with design leaders. I have, gosh, in this last part of my career, I have been a leader of leaders. And so much of being a leader in leaders, while I have had many experiences, those experiences are usually remarkably different than maybe something that someone else is experiencing. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I try to reserve my judgment and gather information and come from a place of evidence and fact at a time where that isn't in vogue. Mm-hmm. It, you know, as societally, we're just in this weird place where sometimes there's this sense of like, there can be two truths. I think that there could be two things that are simultaneously true. Alternative facts. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> but here's what I would say. I don't believe in alternative facts. And we can't allow that to seep into our design or our, our management style or even how we view the world we're trying to manage. Because so much of when you are in a new and evolving inventive space is making sure that we are all on one page about what the facts are. Otherwise, it leads to team disruption. There's a point of not wanting social cohesion because it is a really bad environment for innovation. But at the same time, you don't want that to be a we're all working from a different set of facts and therefore we don't have directionality to our design or our intention. Truth has to do with intention around design. Support for Design Better comes from Uplift Desk, creators of office furniture designed to help you work better and live healthier. It's been estimated that the average person will spend one third of their life at work. Sobering, huh? That's roughly 90,000 hours at work over your lifetime. Imagine what happens to your body if you're working with bad posture and poor circulation. It can be devastating on your health. That's why Eli and I love Uplift Desk and their ergonomic desks and chairs. Uplift Desk makes solid, well-constructed standing desks that you can customize to match your workspace. And they have a wide variety of incredibly ergonomic chairs. My personal favorite is the Human Scale Freedom Chair, I'm sitting in it right now. For professionals like us, investing in the right tools, especially our desk and chair, is essential. You're going to get free shipping, free returns with free return shipping, and an industry-leading 15-year warranty that covers the complete desk. Eli and I love their products, and we know that you will too. Give it a try. Go to upliftdesk.com and use code DESIGNBETTER5 for 5% off your order. That's U-P-L-I-F-T desk.com to get 5% off your entire order with promo code designbetter5. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. When we spoke with Seth Godin on Design Better, he said something very interesting. Everyone's got a noise in their head. You, me, your boss, everyone. That noise in our head is self-doubt, confusion, fear, anxiety, all of that. It's part of the human experience and it can hold us back. Therapy is one of the best ways to work through it all. 
to quiet the unproductive noise and develop positive mental health. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and to work with your schedule. BetterHelp can help you get the support that you need. Visit betterhelp.com slash designbetter today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash designbetter. Support for Design Better comes from our friends at CrashPlan. Visit CrashPlan.com slash Design Better for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. From my daughter's first birthday to my son's first soccer game, if you're like me, you have thousands of precious family photos that only exist in digital form. That's why I've been using CrashPlan for a decade and a half now to back up all my important files. CrashPlan works efficiently in the background while you work, encrypting and sending all your new or changed files up to their secure cloud server every 15 minutes. And they make it simple to restore some or all of your data. And with unlimited version retention, CrashPlan can also be your ultimate rewind button. Businesses of all sizes benefit from CrashPlan's multi-tenant capabilities, buy as many user licenses as you need, and easily manage them all under one account. Go to CrashPlan.com slash designbetter for 50% off your first year of CrashPlan. That's crashplan.com slash design better, all one word, for 50% off your first year. Back up better with CrashPlan. On that topic, I'm curious, Joanna, so your latest role, you're not just dealing with software design, right? You're an internet of things, so there's software, there's hardware, there's these complex systems. How do you get these different teams and roles to start speaking the same language and working together more effectively? Carefully, (laughs) with great care and with a lot of intent. I think one of the things that I needed to do very early on was set a vision, and it was a unifying vision. And I'm going to share what that vision is because I think that anybody who is dealing with the Internet of Things, who defines it as just one thing, has a real misunderstanding of what it is. The Internet of Things is a neural network of connected sensors. And if we start to think about it from that perspective, that means in the next 25 years, everything will be connected to everyone. And that is inclusive of all of our infrastructure as a society and the way that we will really reconfigure economic paradigms across the globe. What's really interesting is that we sit in this moment of time when we're in the midst, and I'd say the early onset of the fourth industrial revolution. What tells us we're in the midst of that, that space, the thing that has emerged is there are three engines. There's a communication engine, there's an energy engine, and there's an engine of mobility. And when you see innovation around those, and then that concert, think of them as concentric circles that meet. That can, when communication, mobility, and energy meet, you go, okay, well, that we're in this special time, and that means we're in another industrial revolution. What's interesting, though, is around the fourth industrial revolution, IoT has emerged as a general purpose technology. Just as the internet merged as the general purpose technology, IoT is doing the same thing. And in that space, if you remember where we were in the early 90s of just figuring out we needed a browser, 
we're in that space in connected devices of understanding what the appropriate user experience needs to be and how people need to engage with devices, whether that device is something that is connected in your home, right? From your connected televisions to your Echo devices to your Ring you start to think about all the things that we have that are now connected in our home. Shoot, my refrigerator is connected, right? You start to go, all these things that got these things that used to be relatively, for lack of a better term, a dumb thing, now trying to become a smart thing. How do these things start to work together? And so, so much of the work that we are doing is helping companies understand that confluence of both the physical and digital worlds collating that there is no longer a line between the two. The line has blurred. And the role of what we are doing in the Internet of Things is to understand people in space and time. And so that means that within space and time, that can be a physical space. Where are you standing? You may be in a home. You may be in an office. What are the devices that are connected to you? How are they connected to each other? How are they interoperable? And then what are we doing with that data that those devices are producing. So much of the work that we are doing now is in the area of the democratization of those tools. Because here's the reality. The Internet of Things has been around for a while. If you really calibrate it the right way, look, our cars have been connected for close to 20 years. You personally may not have been driving a connected car, but if you were in the world of General Motors and driving a Cadillac or a Chevy or a Buick, They have this thing in there called OnStar. It is literally a modem that was feeding all of the information from the vehicle into a a centralized place. Was it in the cloud? No. But you start to take a look at that transition of companies to the cloud and how they're making their businesses a little bit more reliant and scalable in the cloud. And I think that's one of the great transitions we're doing. So yes, there is a hardware aspect that you're starting to look and say, not only do we need industrial designers, but actually architecture and interior design, when it comes to the internet of things, are perspectives that we need at the table. And it's really exciting to me to when I talk with, you know, folks that are in the smart manufacturing area, and they're thinking about how they design their factories, not just to be more efficient, but more safe for the people that are in them. And then taking that, they're using data in order to be able to do that That's a remarkable new space for designers. And to think about it from this perspective is that we have to orchestrate and put intention behind that because when it is unbridled without control, it's a mess. But when there is intention of creating a better place, better place to work in, a better place to live in, and really starting to solve some of the core problems that are often human problems, Meaning that what we're not doing is having machines replace people, but what we're doing is having them augment them, giving them superpowers. Joanna, what's interesting about what you're describing is you're in a unique situation that with Amazon and IoT, you're trying to help a diverse group of people see the future. This is what life will look like in X amount of time. So many companies struggle with this challenge of how do we hold it all in our heads, our collective, create this collective wisdom of what the customer journey is. And I think that what you're describing is more than just a customer journey. It's like a a journey into the future. I wonder if you could tell us 
specifically or like the tactics? How do you actually do that research to show this is what the future is like? And then how do you communicate that to a team? Like, do you create a deck? Do you create a video? Is it a documentary? How do you help people see it and plug into that work? One of the important parts is really outlining the vision, right? And then creating a set of principles or tenets that we all kind of abide by and we design to that are anchored in the realities of today. It's important to have one foot in the future, but you have to have another foot in the reality of today because it's one thing to paint a unique vision. It's another thing to actually make it real and understanding that when you go into these things of creating new things, whether that is software, hardware, or bringing these things together, by the way, new interfaces, right? Completely new interfaces, whether those are voice or brain, you have a, a broad spectrum of what you can play with. What it is is around bringing incredible focus of, if this is the future that we intend, here are the immediate goals that are in front of us and the principles and tenets that we will work by and we will measure ourselves by. And I think when you put those things in really clear terms for a team and spend time with them and use them as, I call them tiebreakers, it's like, should we be doing this? And you look at the tenant on the wall and about security or privacy and you go, nah, we probably shouldn't. You're using them as a place of bringing ethics to your work because anything is possible, but should everything be possible? And you ask yourself of those things. And then it is getting down to the business of mentoring designers in their craft mm -hmm. because so much of this is taking traditional user experience design that often has been so focused on a screen and moving it out and saying, how does it work in this space? Stand in this space with this thing and what is the reality of it working? And the reality of something working, I think, what is really important. So we get to prototype early and often to test our ideas because if you don't, it's all hypothetical. And I always look at the role of design in this space right now is to try to envision that future, right? Listen to the signals of what customers are telling us about what they desire. What is it that they really desire? And then pressure test them against that future. You also go beyond that because, you know, there's that famous saying from Henry Ford that's, that's often oversighted, but I'm going to cite it anyway. If I asked customers what they wanted, they would have said a faster horse. And coming out with Echo, all of the Echo ecosystem, I think that that was something that people had considered, but they really couldn't see it. And it's not the sort of, that's a revolution that a customer is not going to tell you, this is what I want because they can't yet see it. How do you look past that? Of course, taking in customer inputs is valuable, but how do you also see what's, what we can't see yet? It's not an either or. And I think this is so super important is that you have to be able to, and this is something that I have to tell you as an Amazonian leadership principle that we live and take very seriously. Mm -hmm. Customer obsession means that we start with our customer and we work backwards from there. And we work vigorously mm -hmm. to earn and keep their trust. And we pay attention. We're paying attention to our competitors, but we obsess over the customer. But at the same time, you are balancing the ability to think big, because we do believe that thinking small is a self-fulfilling prophecy. <laughs> I think that one of the things that Amazon has done remarkably well is be a leader that has created and communicated a bold direction that inspires our results. 
Mm-hmm. And when you couple that with this idea that we are here to invent on behalf of the customer, right? The customer may give us some really good signals to where's the space to pay attention to, but we expect and require innovation and invention from our teams mm-hmm. to always look to go, okay, that's, a, that's super complex, that area. How do we simplify that? It's about being externally aware and looking for new ideas from everywhere and not being limited to this idea that, oh, it wasn't invented here. But it is, I would say, you know, you balance that ability to not be told what customers want. I mean, we should be listening and be obsessing over those things, but to always try to be one or two or three steps ahead of that customer Mm -hmm. in the area of invention and the simplification of our experiences. And so whether that is an Echo product, whether that is an AWS product, whether that is when you walk into an Amazon Go, you know, trying to stay two to three steps in front to invent things that people really desire or could actually simplify their lives. This is the perfect job for you, isn't it? I mean, just <laughs> thinking of like uh, your, your whole narrative arc of like where you've come from to where you are today. I mean, it seems perfect. It is a good place. And I would I love to say that anyone who gets the opportunity to work with such smart individuals at a time of remarkable growth. Mm-hmm. And at a time when, you know, you realize that leaders within the organization exercise such great judgment and have good instincts and that they're balancing with this humble approach to learning. It was a space where I went, wow, this is somewhere I could thrive. And, you know, that goes to making decisions about moves is when the values of the company align with your values or your superpowers, you've got to be able to pursue the conversation, like quiet the noise down about what you've heard in the press, things like that, and actually go meet some people and meet some people and find out what they're up to. They will reveal themselves and the company, the way a company behaves will reveal itself very quickly if you're willing to ask really tough questions and do so when you're at that place of a pause. And I certainly was, you know, I was on a sabbatical. It was something where I was uh, working on designing inventions for climate change with some people that I have tremendous respect for. And when Amazon came knocking and uh, pursuing me, it was one of those spaces where I took a very big pause and said, in this space and in my career where I can do anything, I can go anywhere and do anything is this the right place for me? Is this the right place for me to learn things that I don't know yet Mm -hmm. and learn how to behave in a way that I've never behaved before, by -hmm. the way? I think so much of our key leadership principles are there, but what I would tell you is that Amazon operates unlike any other company on the planet in a way that they do things differently. It's a part of our peculiar, you'll hear, hear, you know, that is a, Hashtag, you know, be peculiar. Well, it is peculiar if you're coming in and realizing that this is a 20-year-old company who, very much like myself, stumbled that we would try things, stumbled into it, and some of them were a success and some of them weren't. But mm-hmm. we really laud the successes. And my goodness, do we learn from failure. And I often look, it's like, is it really failure if you made something, people told you it wasn't right, 
And so you went back and you refined into something different. And I think that is the history of Amazon. And that's certainly for me aligned with my career. There is no perfect trajectory. And I think that's the thing that I have learned in that both when the company has an interesting trajectory that kind of matches your trajectory, it becomes a really interesting space to go in and learn from. And if you look at it that way, say, hey, I'm coming in a space to to bring my skills into a place that works differently. So how do I adapt my skills to do that? But I think even more importantly, looking for a role with a company that aligns to your beliefs, because when they are not in conjunction, when your company is going and doing things that makes you feel uncomfortable or your leadership is doing things that make you feel uncomfortable, that's when you know. You asked me earlier, when is it time to go? That's exactly when it's time to yeah, go. Yeah. And if, if there isn't a space that has those values, what I share with designers is dare to make that space because there's space for all of us. There's this narrative fallacy that there isn't enough room for all of us at the top or being a leading company. Mm -hmm. And that is absolute BS. There is plenty of space in this marketplace for all of us to be inventors. If you decide to work for a company that aligns to your values, great. If you're working for a company that doesn't align to your values and you're miserable in that space, usually, by the way, your sense sensibility of misery and misalignment do, co you know, they, they, uh, yeah. they're in that space. Go try something. The worst thing that can happen is you learn something. I just wanted to kind of tie together a couple of the threads that we talked about. One is, you know, early on, we discussed the importance of being inclusive in uh, the way that we design products. And then we also touched on some of the challenges of raising a family and having a high-performing career. I wonder, could you talk a little bit about how you think about bringing in more diversity and inclusivity into leadership? Oh my gosh, <laughs> passion point area, absolutely. So let me just kind of start this space right here in terms of as a person with a disability, as a Latinx, as a Mexican-American, a Jewish woman, could I get any more intersectional? <laughs> Ticking all the boxes. I walk, in a, I walk in a space of intersectionality, but what I realize is that I have gone through my life with incredible privilege, particularly in my own community. And I, will, I share this story because it is something I'm so mindful of today and continue to be. But, you know, I walk through this life as a Mexican-American, the daughter of a finally talented Mexican-American woman designer. And what I kind of realized was that the color of my skin was different from that of most of my family. I am a lighter-skinned Hispanic uh, or Latinx person, and my mother and sister are not. And I have walked through this life with incredible privilege so often mm -hmm. so that people have no idea of what, where I'm from or you know, where I've come from. And just, I'm just this smart kid who shows up. But doors opened differently for me than do other people of color. And I am keenly aware of it because I watched it in my everyday. That discrimination exists I remember my mom, you know, although doors may have been closed, she kicked them open <laughs> and did so in the world of design and construction in the 80s and 90s. I have seen that in some of my Latina peers, and I get allowed in spaces that they don't get to go. And so I see it as a personal mission that when I get to those tables, 
that I am bringing people into leadership with me that don't look like me, that unsettle the status quo. Matter of fact, if you are a company who is not looking for inclusion, <laughs> do not hire me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. That's, that should be a t-shirt. <laughs> but if you are someone who, you know, I have lived in a, in a very different experience and have witnessed things that I would say that my white female counterparts have not, and I'll never forget one time, and I'll tell you how like blatant it was. One time I was on Madison Avenue, and I'm in a conference room, and people were talking about where they came from, and I happened to be speaking Spanish to a colleague, and they, they looked at me and they said, you're Mexican? Like, to, to question it. And I said, yeah, proudly, yes, I am. And they went, oh, well, you don't look Mexican. And that all of a sudden was like this realization of, oh, but because I identify, like, is that going to exclude me from this meeting? Mm -hmm. Like, what are we even talking about? And by the way, why are we even asking? Yeah. But it was, you know, all of this, it was this all of the sudden pivot point. And what I realized was, oh, now it's really incumbent upon me as a leader because I am allowed in these spaces because of the color of my skin. I look at it kind of poorly. You know, as a kid, I looked at brown and having brown skin is beautiful. My mm -hmm. grandmother and mother and sister are beautiful women. And so when I come out into the real world, you know, because uh, I outside lived in this beautifully Hispanic bubble of San Antonio, Texas. And so I was the odd person out. I was the person with light skin and, you know, in a mm -hmm. primarily 86% Latino environment. When you understand that the rest of the world doesn't see the uh, you that way. And there is at that time an unconscious bias. You have to sit in that space and demand that the people that you bring to the team there is a sense, not just a sense of diversity, but attempt to bring in some awareness of it and call it out, which is a really tough thing to do. But it's one of those things where I think there's an appropriate way to do it, which is when you look around the table as a leader and you're sitting at that table as a leader with privilege and you sit silent, you are complicit in the mm. problem. Mm -hmm. But if you turn around and you look around and you say, where are the African-American women? in this room, where are the people with disabilities in this room? And there aren't, and there's not an answer for it, then my bias for action says, I'm gonna go and begin networking in every single one of those communities mm -hmm. to find leaders, to bring them to this table. Because when we don't have them around the table, we are doing a disservice to our customers. Our customers are represented so differently than often we are in the world of design. And so if you are not bringing that representation, there is no way we can design for people we don't know. That is what for me is a point of passion and a track record. In my activism, you know, I look at design and activism. Let's remember that design is a political act and let's not forget that for one second. It's so a political act and the way that we design the systems that we are designing because we are building new systems of society and the way that we communicate. So Joanna, you've been involved in your career in addition to all the amazing leadership roles you've had in for-profit companies. You've put a lot of work into nonprofits, uh, the Girl Scouts and other organizations. Can you tell us a little bit about that or any new initiatives that you have going? 
Absolutely. One of the things I'm really excited about is really focusing on three very specific areas with a new non-for-profit that I am a part of. And that non-for-profit has got a code word right now. It's called Design by Us. And it's going to do three things. One of the things it's going to do is help women tell their stories. We're going to raise those voices up to an octave that is audible, which is really important. We're going to help women tell their stories. We're also going to highlight the forgotten women in design because so much of what we need to be successful is we've got to see it to understand that we can be it. And so in that, we're going to take it a step further and begin to highlight that and create stories that will be an ongoing effort. And all of the funds and pieces of that will go to fund a scholarship for underrepresented women in design. And we are going to be looking in non-traditional spaces, both the traditional of design school folks that are there. But one of the things that we have learned in the space of trying to create more of a pipeline is that often underrepresented voice are first and second generation immigrants into this country or into the, you know, into some of the Western countries in the UK. This was a global fund uh, initiative that we are doing, but they don't have access to art schools because often their parents do not see it as a job that would make any money. <laughs> and so they are deviated at the high school level from making a choice to going to design school or going to art school. And so we are going to be really focusing in on that area and putting forth scholarship money so that they can go to design school. And so for me, I'm in this space in my career where, to your point earlier, I feel so fortunate to have accomplished so much and there were so many people involved with those accomplishments. I did not do it alone. And so as I reflect back at the point in time that I am now in my career, for me, it is about now reaching back and ensuring that the path that female leaders in design are ensuring that, that path is clear, that we're giving people a dream, that they have the skill sets to actually do the work. And then even more importantly, and this one's important for women, and I want people to understand it, that they need more than mentorship. What they need is sponsorship. And so that we are sponsoring women forward into these careers, both from the point of when they figure out that they want to be in design to getting them into the right schools. And then more importantly, from that middle space of helping them tell their stories in a way that inks their legacy in design. That's fantastic. That's, that's wonderful. What a fascinating conversation. Just to wrap up, could you tell us uh, what's inspiring you these days? What are you reading? What are you listening to, learning that uh, currently is lighting your fire? I'm usually reading two or three books at a time. So bear with me because I'm going to give you one of them right now. I think it's probably one of the most important books that has been put out in the world. Of, we talked about alternative facts. Mm -hmm. And it is a book that was just put out by Barry Weiss called How to Fight Anti-Semitism. Mm. But I would tell you that anti-Semitism and the definition of it is conspiratorial. It starts at a place of conspiratorial thinking and a society's inability to deal with truth. And it, I think at this time is a really important book, 
not just as a human being, but as a designer, because designers need to work in truth and not conspiracy. And we need to conspire to tell the truth (laughs) for customers. We need to conspire to tell the truth because it's morally the right thing to do. And I think at a time, at this point in time, it's so important for designers to be active and vocal in this space for that, because we're just in this space of where some of the tools that we have designed, I don't think that their intent was ever to destroy democracy. So I think that's a really important one. And then art and physics, that juxtaposition of having the science brain and being able to tell visual stories and how people interpret them and how they have interpreted them through history and understanding that. Those are some really awesome spaces. And then I will say the last one, was Stacey Abrams' book on leadership. If you haven't had a chance, any woman leader, doesn't matter what field, but, Abrams. but especially designers. Very similar. The thing that I had in common with Stacey Abrams was that, you know, as designers and artists, we're never really taught how to be financially successful. We can actually gain mm. great acclaim and fame for the things that we invent and do, but how do you kind of teach yourself And what is the thing that we need to include in design schools, which is kind of the business acumen of what that means and the messiness that no one's, there's no direct line. And when you don't have a uh, representation in place, often we're kind of placing barriers to having women rise in ways that they should. So those are three books that as an audience, they say, gosh, how did those apply to design? When you read them, they are all about systematic problem solving. I I love it. That's exactly the way I think about it too. I read so many adjacent things to design and find that it all loops back in one way or another because it's all people stuff, it's decision-making, and those things are core to design. Absolutely. And I think the one thing that I have to say to designers, just as a kind of a parting thought, because so much of the design world is pretentious. And at a time when the world needs us so much more, we need to like take that pretentious hat off for a moment, do some listening, and get down to designing solutions both at the local and at the big systematic levels because there's something for all of us to do. And one of the areas that I couldn't be more passionate about, right, in a democratic society is understanding that democracy is a design problem. And there's such a need right now mm-hmm. in local communities. And the reality is, is that early on, I told you, you have to kind of pick your time. You can't do everything at once. Well, we're at this point in time where you can't do everything, but you can do something. Mm-hmm. And so... To the design community, whether that is in your workplace or in your local town or at the startup that you're at, understand the complexity that we live in and be focused with intent. And one thing that I will share with you is that when we do that, that leads to the larger systematic change. And I believe in that wholeheartedly. I believe in that we are uniquely suited in this world to help leaders solve problems, but those leaders don't all have to be C-suite leaders. They can be leaders within politics and policymaking. They can be in your local neighborhood tackling any one of the million problems that we have. Mm -hmm. 
And so much of our energy so often gets focused in on our careers. And what I have found is when I have both focused on my career and integrated my activism for design and in design and put those things together, it has only opened up more doors, not Mm. less. I love it. Joanna, where can people learn more about you? They can go to joannapenabickley.com is one space that's a a really great place or this old-fashioned thing called search, called Google. It's not hard to find me. I can assure you of that. Joanna, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I have to say that it has been uh, a great time and I look forward to continuing the conversation. Mm 